Um, hey, thank, thanks everybody for coming out. Uh, th- this is so fun for us. It's our first rodeo. So if we screw it up, you know, we, we appreciate the patience and also like this venue, uh, one more time for Todd. He, he put, he put this, he put this together in, I think four days, I think four or five days ago, we decided to do it in four or five days, kind of just rolled out the red carpet for us. And so we're grateful to be here. And David, I mean, you're a hero of mine personally, um, from, from a young age, um, I'd hear these legendary stories of entrepreneurship and building these airlines. And it was always, you know, so fun to kind of watch from afar. And it's been even more fun to see kind of the next stages of the journey with Azul and with, um, now Breeze. And so, um, anyway, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I asked Todd, Todd, how do you taxi the plane out with all those cars in the way? And they said, that's Casey. You move the cars behind the plane. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm worried about that plane. It costs more than all of our planes. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful plane. It's a beautiful plane. Hey, so I want to go back to like the very beginning, like the origin stories. Cause I think everybody sees today and they see you know, arguably like this line that's just linear and it's like from this thing to this thing to this thing to this thing. And all of them have just been wildly successful. Um, but it started pretty humble from the beginning. So go back to like the very beginning, like who, who were your mentors or who were the kind of first people that you learned business from? I was in college and, and, you know, I got... <laughs> stuck in the travel business. I, I, I actually had, had met someone in one of my accounting classes, um, at the <clears throat> University of Utah. Um, I had met somebody up there and they, they had some timeshare condos. Uh, her mother knew a Swiss guy. His name was Al Lieber that owned some condos in Hawaii. And so I just called him up one day and I said, Hey, can I come see you? And he was paying a maintenance fee on these things. And it was costing him a bunch of money. I said, can I just rent them from you and then pay you the maintenance fee? And he said, sure. So I ran a little wand ads in the newspaper and say, want a condo in Hawaii for 800 bucks. I paid him three and I pocketed 500 but bucks. You're how, you're how old at this time? I'm, I'm home from my mission, uh, you know, recently married, you know, a baby on the way. And all of a sudden I start selling one or two, two a day. I'm making a thousand dollars a day selling these condos. And, and then I just parlayed it into a tour business. And, you know, I, I think one of the important things that you, that you learn in life is sometimes you have to have failures and failures teach you things. And so I was doing this. I had $8 million in revenue. I had hired all my buddies. I dropped out of college and then I had started pairing it with airfare. And I'd have people prepay and I'd send the money down and they'd send me tickets. It was right after deregulation when people could fly wherever they wanted to. And then I got a call from the airline one day that I was using. It was called Hawaii Express. And they said, we're out of business. And I said, what do you mean you're out of business? You have all my money. And that was, you know, obviously tough. I mean, I was, I was 24 years old. So go back and give context because even for myself, like that's not how we buy plane tickets today. So like, how would you actually buy plane tickets back then? Well, plane tickets, and this, this actually is part of my story, is they were negotiable documents. They were like uh, an actual check in a sense. If you lost 
an airplane ticket. And you're like, what do I do with my airplane tickets? Or I forgot them. They'd say, you know, you lost your money. Fill out this form. And if nobody uses that ticket in the next six months, we'll give you a refund. So they were negotiable documents. I mean, looking back now, it's like archaic. You know, it's kind of, it's crazy that that was was crazy. I'd, I would send a guy a check for 20,000 bucks and they'd send me these tickets. And then I'd write people's names on And if you lost it, you lost it. Yeah, you lost lost it. You lost your money. Yeah. And that's at, at, at the next. So, so this, this certainly went broke. And then I got a call from, you know, we just kind of like had to fold because they had all of our money. And I, I, I was just a college kid, a college dropout. And then I got a call from June Morris and she had a travel agency in town. She goes, I've been watching you and I want you to come work for me. And she didn't actually call me. She called my uncle because I wouldn't return her phone call. My uncle was her attorney. And so I went to go see her and she charmed me. And then we started Morris Air. That was kind of the first airline. And during that time at Morris Air, and I ran it for 10 years before I sold it to Southwest Airlines, but I had someone come in my office one day and he said, wow, we got a whole room full of people down there stuffing tickets and mailing them out to people. Why don't we just give them a confirmation number? And the technology didn't exist to do that. You didn't have a database, a relational database to be able to do that. So um, we, there's a whole story behind that. And if anyone wants to listen to how I build a podcast, I go into a little bit of detail there. And we, we, um, created a relational database. My my partner did, and this is this is what year? Like kind of what? Uh, this is 1990, 1990, okay. 1991. So we 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 developed it. So you call us on the phone, and we'd say, "Okay, here's your flight uh, confirmation number. Write it down." And people would say, "That's all we need. No tickets required." So we were the first e-ticket airline wow. ever. And so the interesting story about that is that. When, after Southwest bought us and we got Southwest Airlines ticketless, Southwest is in the Smithsonian for that, not us. But my partner who actually did it was a guy named David Evans. And then he came back and we founded this company together to do e-ticket travel and start reservation systems for low fare carriers. And my non-compete, then I went up and started WestJet in Canada with, with some guys and my non-compete was starting to run out. So I sold this company for $25 million and then to Hewlett Packard and Hewlett Packard bought it and they didn't know what to do with it. So then they wanted to sell it. And then I tried to buy it back for 7 million and they were embarrassed to sell it to so the person. So they wouldn't do So it. they sold it to Accenture and then David stayed on, Dave Evans, my partner, and then the Accenture sold it many years later for a billion dollars. Wow. So I was like, oh, well, I, I, try, I should have offered him $8 million and I could have been part of that. So, and I called Dave Evans and said, wow, Dave, did you get part of that money? And he said, he said, no, I got stock options in Accenture. So that was a, it's an amazing story. And the company's called Navitaire today and it's based in Utah. Same, still here and there's 65 airlines that use the system. So, but go, go back to the Morris Air one, because this, this is such a, fun story. I remember hearing it with, it was June. Yeah, June. And her husband. Mitch. And, and I, I remember hearing the story where you guys were basically, he would come and he would say, hey, this is our whiskey drinking yeah. money or something, you know, he was where a you great, kinda... Mitch was a World War II veteran, just a great, great man. And it was funny because June Morris was working at a travel agency and 
he they met and he wanted to marry her and they got married and he had some money. He had started a business developing photographs and was bought by Transamerica Corporation, which was this big conglomerate. But June couldn't get off work on Saturday. So he goes, let's start our own business. I want to set you up and start a business. So they started Morris Travel. So Mitch was had sold his his film business, his developing business, and he would sit in his office and he took president and took off the off the P and called it resident. And he was just kind of this old sage that would sit in there and 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 kind of look over things and provided the the bonding and all that to do charters. And then when we would make money at the end of the year, um, we would divide it into thirds. He goes, we're going to keep a third of the money in the company. Um, we're going to pay taxes on a third. And then the rest is whiskey drinking money because he was a old World War II guy that would go home and, and drink his whiskey. And, you know, he, he was just an incredible human being. And, you know, June, I, I was out of the business and June begged me to come see her. And if it wouldn't have been for that, I wouldn't. But, but how, do, how do you go today. from, I'm a travel agency to, to a, an airline? An airline. Like that's not like a natural it was transition. A, an evolution from a charter. We started chartering airplanes. But go, go, go into that. Like what was like the, the, the pain? And my business, um, the first business I had was called IFS Travel. I had already contacted Hawaiian Airlines and I had a, I had a contract from them to run a plane from Hawaii, come to Salt Lake, pick up a bunch of people and fly back at old DC-8s. And I couldn't, I didn't have enough money to come up with the, the bond. It was, I needed a charter bond for $250,000 from the DOT. And so I, all that money would have gone into escrow had I just gotten that deal done before the airline that I was using went broke. And so when June hired me, I went and got that contract and said, I have this all set up. June, Mitch, do you want to do the $250,000 bond? And, and, and it basically the whole thing was, I'm going to, fly from Hawaii to Provo. Yeah. To and, Salt Lake. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of one time a week. And, then you, would night, just, and then you would just fill it up. You yeah. would, you'd market it and you'd fill it up. And that was the origins of. Yeah. And then Hawaiian Air. Airlines said, uh, we were doing this Hawaii flight and they said, we're going to bring a plane to Salt Lake that we have to send back. It's, it's, uh, do you want to fly anywhere else? And I said, yeah, I want to fly to Los Angeles. And they said, okay, we'll fly to Los Angeles. How many days a week? I said, four days a week. And I'll charge $69. And it was Western Airlines. It was just being bought by Delta. So they literally just had a plane that was just kind of sitting. They were going back in a few months. We're we're just going to leave it here sitting. Do you want to do something with it? Yeah, do you want to do with it? That was it. So I we didn't really have a phone system. If it rang, we had phones that would ring around the room. And we have to, the first person would take all the phone calls. and we just ran an ad in the newspaper and said, go to LA for $69. And the first couple of days we didn't get a lot of calls. And then I remember coming in on a Monday morning, opening the door of the travel agency and our, um, our receptionist was paging. I have 34 LA calls on hold. Will someone please help me? So that was kind of the so start. It, just, of, it was just like, yeah, perfect product market fit. Like it yeah. was just, an irresistible offer. And then it was during more Sarah days that I fell in love with Southwest airlines. I was just absolutely obsessed with Southwest when Herb Keller, who's the founder of Southwest airlines, when he, when, when, when we sold to Southwest at that time, he came to Salt Lake and I took him up to meet the first presidency and, and, uh, 
I, I had my scriptures and I had my Southwest Airlines annual report. And I said, this is what I read every day, the Southwest Airlines. He was like your mentor. He, he was, was. Yeah, he was a great man. Um, Mitch Morris, Herb Kelleher. Yeah. So how do you go from, hey, I'm doing a charter to I'm building a business that is attractive enough that Southwest says we have to own it? Well, so it's this interesting story. And there's somebody in the room here that is part of this story. A friend of mine. Where's John? Is he here somewhere? So John Evans, he might have snuck out of here. But John, um, so Steve Hazy. Steve Hazy is this legendary uh, aircraft leasing guy. He's almost 80 years old. He's kind of like Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, he's Isn't Hall he of Fame. Kind of, yeah. And so Steve, um, his family immigrated uh, from Hungary. They ended up in New York, and then they ended up in, in, in California. And he had a friend that had a dad that had some money to, to be able to back a, a loan, and they ended up buying uh, old DC-8 and leasing it to Aeromexico. And they made 40000 a month doing it, like my condos on a much bigger scale. So then they started this business called International Lease Finance Corporation. It was ILFC. And they were incredible. They were, they were uh, you know, kind of the first ones in that business. And as, so, so as, as luck would have it, Steve, as he was this young Hungarian guy, he was trying to figure out if he could fly free on another airline. So he looked up this little airline that had just got started that had two Navajos. It's called SkyWest Airlines in Salt Lake City. So he flew up to Salt Lake because he wanted to be offered to be on their board so they'd give him free travel benefits. He walked into the FBO and, and, and Chris, his now wife, was sitting there. And so he did his business. And then at the end, he said, if you ever want to work in L.A., look me up. And so she went to work for him. He ended up getting uh, baptized, converted. And so his relatives were all in Utah and she was in California and, and they were in California. So they would fly back and forth on Morris Air. So he called me up one day and he said, look, you don't know me. I go, well, I think I do. He said, I'm tired of my, my, my relatives flying on kind of a, you know, charters and, and old 707s that I was chartering. I've got some airplanes I'll lease you, but you need to become an airline. And here's a guy that can help you do it. So he sent me this guy named Eustel Schultz. So we certificated the airline, started adding 737, 300s, and, you know, became Morris Air. And when Southwest bought us, we had like 22 airplanes that we were flying all the way through the, the Mountain West. And Steve Hazy has been a great friend ever since. But I went down to meet him in LA and it was... It was this really deluxe office space. I, you know, I just came in off the turnip truck from Utah and he had this dining room where they were serving me lunch and had this big crystal rhino on the conference table. And next to him was John Evans, who's John's back there. So John was there with Steve sitting side by side. And I said, they said, well, this is our mascot, this rhino. And I said, why is that your mascot? It says, well, it has no known predators and it can copulate for 18 hours. <laughs> I go, great. Here I am. So that was my, my starting with, with Steve and, you know, we've had a great relationship. John, you know, ended up leaving Steve and starting 
three three different leasing companies. And today he's got a company called Azora, and I'm a board member on there. And we're having the board meeting at my at my home in in um, on Thursday. So John John just drove in from so Beaver fun. Creek to be there. So so many stories. So you you build it to a point. It had to have been kind of make because you're what young thirties. Yeah, I was like 32, 33. And, and you've got your he- hero that comes in and says, hey, we want to go buy your business. In fact, we just had the the 40-year anniversary of selling that company. That's so crazy. To Southwest and, Airlines. And, and I think like what 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 is even like better about that story is they were like- I'm sorry, 30-year anniversary. They, they were I'm not kinda, that old. Their, their DNA was like service. Yeah. And they were just really good at efficiency and taking care of the customer. And I know for you, that's always been the foundation of every company you've ever built is just provide world-class service. I mean, you can imagine if you idolize the company and you knew everything about it, and then they take you into their headquarters and there's pictures all over the walls, you know, five-story building pictures of everything. And, you know, Herb's there and all these people that are legendary for me. But it was a great learning lesson for me too, because I had all these questions about Southwest that they wasn't in their annual report. And I was there for about five months and I was so impetuous. And many of you have read that I have ADD and sometimes that's ADD to a fault. You know, I'm blurt things out and I was so impatient about you know, there's certain a lot of things that we were doing that was better than Southwest. Because kind of the original pitch was like, hey, you could come take this over, right? Yeah. Well, they paid us $135 million, yeah. which was a lot back in those days. Yeah. And so um, we were, you know, there were things like ticketless travel. Uh, we had a heads up display in our airplanes that allowed us to land in fog that they didn't have. Um, we had a better rate on 800 numbers than they did. We, we priced our stuff peak on Sunday. They were off peak. So I was just changing all this stuff and I got everything implemented. And then Herb said, I need to take you out to dinner. And then he said, look, you've made everybody so mad here. You have made everyone so mad that I, I can't keep you here because you're just, you know, you've kind of like upstaged everybody. And I really wanted you to stay here and be the CEO, but I, I, I got all these really upset people. You just shook it up too much. He too shook fast. it up. So I can remember I were at Ruth Chris Steakhouse in Dallas and he grabs my hand and I'm crying. And, and he said, you know, um, you know, you, you're just going to have to go. And so, you know, I left and I had signed a five-year non-compete with Southwest. So I called her back and I said, look, how about, you know, loosening that, that five-year non-compete since it didn't work out. And he goes, you're the last person I want to see in the airline business. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, kind of a funny story. I've never really told this story before, but um, I got a call from the Justice Department to go back to Washington, D.C. to talk to him. And their general counsel came along. So I'm sitting there in this room being interviewed by the Justice Department. And they're saying, well, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, um, I can't really be in the airline business for five years because I have a five-year non-compete. And they, and they looked over the general counsel and they said, a five-year non-compete? And he waves them off and says, oh, we know it's not enforceable. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so I said, what? And then, I, then Herb said, I don't care. I'll still sue you anyways. 
because <laughs> I don't want to in the airline business. So during that five-year period of time, I started Navitaire, the company that's yeah. worth a billion dollars. And then I went up and started WestJet in Canada. It was the closest spot out of the United States. I didn't want to get in a legal fight with them. So, and I can't, I, I, you know, it was my words, so I kept it. No, but, but I think, so this is something that's so interesting with founders, because I think there's this idea that like, when I get that exit, then I'll be happier. Like no, when no. I get the money and it's kind of fool's gold a little bit from, totally. from the people that I talk to it, you're kind of happy for a moment, but what makes you happy is the building and the, and the, the creation. And it feels like for you, it like did not last too long. I had so much remorse for selling the company. I mean, I, you know, the remorse has got the biggest share. I think I got, you know, $25 million. I was 32 years, 33 years old. And I took, they took my little company and they just came in and they just did their thing. And I was, you know, and then they booted me out and I'm just like, why did I ever sell? I would have traded all that money to have that to company To have back. it right back. Yeah, I did. I wasn't, I wasn't happy at all. I mean, obviously we were, you know, we had a lot of competition and stuff. And so in a, in a way, June Morris had, had, had developed breast cancer. She was older. Yeah, she had. No. And so that was one of the reasons that I pushed it. But I was really, um, you know, I really regretted it. And it's interesting that, you know, what you just said is, is just a really valuable lesson. And that is that, you know, sometimes you think that you just get your big exit and you have your money, you're going to be happy. And if you're an entrepreneur like I am and you love building things and you make love being part of something big, you know, bigger than yourself, then, you know, that's really not, you know, what, what, what drives you. One of the things that I think is the most beautiful part of your story is how hard the hard has been along the way. Because like that, to have your hero fire you. Yeah. It's got to just like break your heart. But there's, there's a number of these like yeah. mile marks, but it seems like the rest of the story never could have happened without that one, you know? So it's like, it kind of had the, well, there's a silver lining in every dark cloud, you know, that, that was, that was, that was devastating, but getting, getting, you know, the Jeff Blue thing was a hundred times worse than that. But you know, what, what happened to Jeff Blue is, you know, we were running this company. It was doing great, you know, public. Um, we had a market cap that's higher than it is today, 20, 20 years ago. And, you know, our board just kind of, we had an event. Well, it was called the Valentine's Day Massacre. Where we had an ice storm and some planes got stuck on the runway. And then the board thought, hmm, maybe we should, you know, they, we had a couple of professors, business school professors from, you know, Harvard and Stanford. And they, they kind of thought, well, this is founder syndrome. Let's get some person in to run it. And they put the person who was running the operation in charge and, and then they wanted me just to be the chairman. And I was like, you know, that was, that was absolutely devastating. Uh, but the greatest accomplishment of my life came because of that. There is, there's nothing that compares, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Breeze will. Well, so I, I, so I want to go back real quick because, because you're jumping around. I know where you're going, Yeah, but I think there's like some steps in between. So you go to Canada yeah, and you just build another airline. Because it's across the border. Yeah. Because I could get out of the country. <laughs> it was the closest spot and you out also of the country. build the ticketing company that end up, you know, revolutionizing the entire industry. Everybody end up using kind of those things that you built. Yes. How did you 
transition from that to JetBlue and what was kind of the origin thesis of JetBlue? Like when you thought about it, what was the value proposition? Because you'd done Morris Air, now you've done it in Canada, but JetBlue was like, it was pretty disruptive and it was, and it was a lot of the ideas were very new and kind of different. Exactly. Uh, you know, a couple of cool stories about, about that. When I sold um, Southwest Airlines, we had developed in-home reservationists. All these people were in their homes. Well, Southwest Airlines was a union shop and the union wouldn't allow people to work from home. They had to work in a call center. So Southwest Airlines built a call center out here, tried to staff it and everybody quit because they didn't want to work in a call center. And so I told all those people, if I ever start another airline, I will put, I will make sure I come and hire all of the reservationists here in, in Utah. In fact, I met one here tonight that that's here that was a year 2000 hire of ours. And so, um, as the, my non-compete was, was running out, um, I, <clears throat> another pretty cool story. We had taken some venture capital money at Morris Air a year before, and it was $15 million investment. And when Southwest called and we made a deal to sell the company, I went to the, to the investors and said, look, you know, we're going to sell June has cancer. You're going to get two X your money for 12 months. And they said, well, we don't think that's good enough. And I said, well, how much, what would you be happy with? And they said, um, we want two and a half X. And I said, well, how, is that 42 and a half million? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, we'll give you 42 and a half million. And they said, are you, are you really? And I said, yeah. You know, if you think that's fair, we'll, we'll do that. And cause there's plenty of money to go around. There's 135 million. You get your 42. June will get hers. I'll get my 25. And it's okay. So my non-compete was starting to run out. I called the same guys. I said, you guys want to do it again? And they go with you anytime, any place, wow. anywhere. Wow. And so I said, and, it's and who, be, who, who was this? Who, it, was, it was Michael Lazarus. It was Michael. Yeah. Michael Lazarus, who's on my board of Breeze today. And so I called him up and he said, okay. And I said, but it's going to be a lot more money this time. So, but where, where do you, cause I'm fascinated. Where do you get kind of this abundance mindset? Where do you get this mindset of like, yeah, there, there's enough pie for everybody. Because I think some people look at that and they, they get really scarce and they say contractually it's this, or, you know, they, they, yeah. they tighten up and it feels like, that served you really well your entire career to not do that, to always give a little more. You know, it's, um, you know, one of my partners at, at JetBlue who passed away recently, um, his, his name was Tom Kelly. He was just a great, great man. He, he taught me the, the concept of marginal utility of money. And that is your first million means a lot more to you than your second million and, and so on. And, you know, I just think, you know, it's never really been about the money for me since I ended up selling the company. It was more about creating something special and, you know, I, and, and being fair to people. And because of that, I was able to call Michael and I said, this time it's going to be more than 15 million. It's going to be 135 million. We're going to raise. And he says, all right, I'll get it done. We'll get it done. And we, we started flying in a February of 2000. By September 11th of 2001, 
we were at the printers printing our prospectus to go public when the when the airplanes hit the tower. Um, we were the first airline to put armored cockpit doors on our airplanes. And we went public the following April when all the airlines were filing for bankruptcy. We went public first day closed at 1.75 billion um, in 2002. That's crazy. April of 2002. And, and like, what was the, like, talk to me about the thesis. Cause it's kind of been different each time. Morris was a different thesis. Obviously, Canada, it's a smaller market, tighter market. JetBlue was different. Like, what was the thought of, we're going to build it this way and it's going to be different than everybody else because of what? You know, one of the things I learned at Southwest Airlines is you didn't need to buy old airplanes. You could buy new airplanes. And because you ha- the maintenance was lower, the fuel efficiency was better, uh, you could depreciate the airplanes over a longer period of time. It was actually cheaper to, to buy fly new. brand new airplanes yeah. and a way better experience. Like anybody yeah, who's, just way better. Yeah. So I also having ADD, um, it, another funny story. I was, I was on a flight, uh, coming from Dallas and, so, and I sat down and somebody had, had urinated all over my cloth seat and I stood up and I had, urine all over me. And I said to, I called the flight tent over and she said, it's the only seat on the airplane. You want to get off or do you want to fly to Salt Lake? So she gave me a blanket to sit on back when we had pillows and blankets. And, and then the person who was sitting there had moved up a row and was sitting there and halfway through the flight, my socks were, were covered in urine from this poor guy that was sitting in front of me. So the reason I tell that story is I said, we will always have leather seats on all of my airlines. <laughs> we will never have cloth seats. So we were the first person be, to be, because yeah, you, so here, you can imagine. And then I had, I had ADD and I'm like, <laughs> I want to put something in the seat back where that will keep people occupied. And so one day, one of the guys walks in the office and I said, look, there's this company down in Florida this installing live television in airplanes. And I said, we're going to, that's what we're going to do. We're going to put live television in airplanes. And so brand new airplane. And there's a whole nother story how I picked Airbus over Boeing. Um, and it's that the story's continuing as you see in the news today. But um, so he had a brand new airplane, leather seats, live television. And no one else had it. Like no one, no else, one else had any yeah. live stuff. And, and then we had low fares and we were flying in and out of New York, New York. JFK was wide open. It wasn't available. Instantly successful, instantly profitable, instantly went to a company that went to one, 1.75 billion. So it was, it was a, a tremendous, tremendous success. So talk to me about the life cycle of a business. Cause I think there's, there's times and seasons in business that are so fun and like the early stages in the building get so fun. But you've also got into the, like, the good and bad thing about being public is you're public and you've got an independent board. And I think, like, yeah. it zaps some of the fun out of the the magic of creation, you know. And how, how do you navigate that of, I'm going to go build something that's just so beautiful and, like, there's so much soul to it. And then it kind of feels like there's times where the soul gets sucked out of it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, and you've got this fool's gold. You don't want to sell it. You don't want to leave because you're going to be unhappy, you know, so... You have to balance all that. Yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, I I put my heart and soul into JetBlue and it was a tremendous success. You know, it's so, 
it's so interesting. Um, my wife can be my witness. There, I can't remember a single flight I've ever been on JetBlue since I left where someone on that airplane flight crew member didn't come up and say, please come back. And I, and I left 15 years ago. I left in 2007. It was actually 2008 because I stayed on the board for a year. And, you know, it, it was, it really was a magical time and it's really hard to, but JetBlue today is, you know, there's still a lot of people that love flying JetBlue, even though the Wall Street Journal's rated it as the low. Way low. Way like, low. Yeah. The worst airline for the we last We were going through years. the ratings like a couple of weeks ago in our investment presentation and they're like. The lowest. It's the opposite of what you built. It's like, the opposite. Yeah. And, but people still love it. Yeah. <laughs> they still love watching TV and the TVs are bigger now. Yeah. And they have free internet. You know, it's the culture that we created. One of the things that you're kind of famous for, and I, I mean, we're in Todd Peterson's hangar. And I remember when I worked at Vivint, he would go meet with first year reps and he would just be pouring his heart and soul into this 19 year old kid from Burley, Idaho to come work for his company and knock doors. And I remember the senior people in the company would always be like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Why are you, you know, but it was what made that company magic was that he cared that much. And you had that where you would literally go fly and serve. You would, you would serve people on the plane and it was just something that you loved delighting the customer, but it also communicated to the organization that this is really important. You know, the CEO cares. Like, where does that come from? Did you have models that kind of showed you how to do that? Or was that just intuitive from like a leadership standpoint of saying, I need to lead from the front? It was intuitive. Uh, you know, I, I would go out and, and we had a basketball hoop out on the ramp and that's the hardest job ever. And I would help load bags. I'd spend an afternoon loading bags on airplanes and, you know, playing hoops with the guys. And then I would fly in airplanes. Every time I did, I talked to every customer on every flight. Because if you talk to 162 people on a flight and then they all go tell their friends, I talked to the CEO on a flight and I talked to a CEO. The, the I mean, that, that's spreads. where like the folklore and like the legends are built. You yeah. know what I mean? And it, and it's still, I mean, I've, I heard those years later, you know, after. So jumping forward to the board, lets you go. The board takes you out of that position. Yeah, they took, yeah, they did. And it was a, you know, I think it was, it was proven to be a bad decision. Just the financial results, the stock was, you know, it was cut by 80% within a and, couple and of they years. And di they did it because you decided we're reimbursing everybody, right? Was that the... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, you know, boards have a kind of a, you know, they, they look through kind of a one dimensional view and you know they had this guy who was the who I had made the president was really good at arranging board books and rides to the airport and all that kind of stuff and yeah. thought, oh that guy will be a good CEO and it's like really he, you know he, he couldn't even run the airline on the day we had the you know Valentine's Day massacre so it was you know it was really hard but I was I was there for a year and then I you know I was born in Brazil. Uh, my dad was a missionary there. When he came home from his mission, my dad just turned 90 on Sunday. He came home from his mission and he said to my mom, I want to go back and live in Brazil. So I got a job as a journalist um, in Brazil and I was born there. 
So I had this Brazilian passport and I would go back and visit Brazil as a teenager. And I thought, wow, Brazil is the coolest place on earth. All these beautiful beaches, great restaurants. And then I got called there to be a missionary. And I saw a completely other side of Brazil. I was like horrified. I was like, are you kidding me? Because it's Cause rough. I, I spent all my time in the favelas. You know? my, my one, ex- we went to the World Cup. I think it was 2012. And it was scary. Like there was parts of Brazil that were just yeah, like. Yeah, you don't want to hang around in Rio and some yeah. parts. So we were, that's what we worked. So I was just like, my young 20-year-old boy heart just said, you know what? I would love to come back here one day and make a difference in the country. I would love to do something for this country. And I just kind of filed that away. And had the JetBlue board not done what it did, I never would have had that opportunity. And so I decided I was going to Brazil and start an airline. And so I gathered together a group of JetBlue people, one of them who's our CEO today, who's just tremendous, was a missionary in Portugal, spoke funny Portuguese, spoke Portuguese, but not Brazilian Portuguese. Another one was a missionary in Argentina. Another one was a guy who dated a Brazilian at Harvard. So he spoke a little Portuguese. One was a person that I put in charge of safety because Brazil didn't have a safety culture. We raised $250 million this time. And I took this group down to Brazil and, and we just had our 15 year anniversary. And what we've created down there is the most really important thing I've ever done. So my, uh, I've, did a program at Harvard called owners, presidents, managers. Mm-hmm. And I have a Brazilian that was in my cohort. Yeah. And I mean, Azul is Brazil. Like yeah. you, it, it is in, it's woven in the fabric of that country. I mean, you guys do what percentage of flights in Brazil? Well, Brazil, I, I there's a case at Stanford and I just taught it last week um, for, for three classes. And um, it was on should he start or, or shouldn't he? But Brazil is the, Azul is the most important company that's been started in Brazil in the last twenty years. We have a thousand flights a day. We fly over a hundred thousand people a day. Um, we've more than doubled the air traffic in Brazil, and we serve one hundred and seventy cities. Our nearest competitor serves fifty cities. So we. We take life-saving vaccines and medicine to the Amazon jungle. And if you didn't fly on us, you, you, you're four days by boat. And so we have a fleet of 170 airplanes flying around every day um, of all kinds. We fly to Europe. We fly to the United States. But, you know, we, the most thing, I think I'm most proud of is we have 16,000 people that work for us. And directly, and, and another twenty five thousand indirectly, and those half of them have been brought out of poverty, and so we've just made you know I I just can't say enough of how proud I am of that company and 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 you know what we've done. We deliver um, over a hundred thousand packages a day. You couldn't if you order something online before Azul started, it would come through the Coheo, the post office, and it would come in two weeks. We deliver to 4,800 municipalities in 48 hours or less, 100, 100 some days 150,000 packages. So, yeah, it's, oh, it's, I'm so proud of that company. It's, it's really everything. Well, and I, and I, and again, like I go to this like beauty of like the drama of the story. And I think all of us kind of can relate to these peaks of like, 
I'm a CEO of the one of the hottest public companies in the world to kind of embarrassed. And it they kind of take the company away from you. Be like, that had to happen. Like it had to happen for Azul to come. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like... It, and I'm still the controlling shareholder at Azul. So. so, but Azul, you know, was worth $6 billion. COVID came along. We got nothing from the government and we, we would not file for bankruptcy. Our, one of our competitors down there, Gold, just filed this week. I saw that. Latam filed. Uh, Aeromexico filed. Uh, Avianca filed. Everybody filed for bankruptcy, but we didn't. You know, we, we just made a deal with our creditors and we said, so we'll pay you back. You know, the company cash flows about $1.4 billion a year. And then we got to, you know, service our debt. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just something we, you know, we really refuse to do. And, th- you know, the, well, I had people come to me and say, look, we'll give you back your ownership in the company because, you know, your team's running it. Just file for bankruptcy and stick it to everybody else and get rid of the debt. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, we felt strongly about. But yeah. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back there. We're, you know, we're bigger than we've ever been. I mean, we're twice as big as we were going into COVID. But from a market cap point of view, we're only just about a billion, billion two. So I want you to, a couple places I want to go before we finish out. Talk to me about Breeze and like why Breeze, why Utah? You know, as I was in Brazil, I, I kind of, I had a group, a team of people that were former JetBlue people and, you know, kind of looking back thinking, you know, is there some other opportunity here? I never do an airline just because I want to do it. I, it's got to be a reason for doing it. And w- there was a trend that was developing in the United States where airplanes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, airlines were retreating to their hubs. The regional airline market started to, to go down. There were almost a million regional flights in 2010. Today, there'll be just over half a million. So we lost 500,000 um, travelers. Uh, there were, Last year, there were uh, over 100 million less people that traveled in the United States than traveled you know, during the peak. And what was happening is if travel just got more ha- harder and more expensive, people just don't travel as much. And so there was just a, a, a lot of areas that didn't have nonstop service. So our thesis was, if we could be the only nonstop in a market, people would fly us. You know, and when we we would get you know a higher um, average fare, and we would you know do better. And that was something I learned at Azul because ninety percent of our markets in Azul, we either own them or we're the exclusive carrier flying them. And so that's how we were able to survive COVID, where where others didn't. So. When I started looking at these markets, I thought, wow, this is great. And, um, you know, I looked at the the Airbus A220 and the Airbus A220 is a really interesting airplane. We got a great price on it because it was a time when they were trying to sell the airplane. We ordered 120 of them, which is a lot, um, and and options and, and firm orders. But this plane had the ability to have a premium section for not, didn't cost you too many seats. It had long range. You can fly seven and a half hours in, in very comfortable. The windows were bigger. It was really a 2000s technology airplane. Airbus is like a 1970s and Boeing is like a 1950s at 737. 
And so it was the latest and greatest, had the newest, most fuel efficient engines on it. So we could fly long distance. We could fly, put a first class section in there for people who wanted to upgrade. And it would really be, you know, some free, you know, have internet on board, which will have all the planes. Um, hopefully by the end of March, we'll have them all with uh, free, with well, free if you buy our nicest and nice bundles. Um, and, and it just um, kind of took off. I mean, we're getting ready. We're in 49 different cities. Um, we're flying 180 flights a day. And 93% of our routes, we have no nonstop competition. This, this first quarter, we're estimating that our unit revenue will be up 20%. Our, you know, what we get per ticket will be up per seat mile. We'll be up 20%. And um, Frontier just announced today and they're down 6%. But I think the difference, yeah, when we were going through this, what was so fascinating to me is you take like an Allegiant, that they get a higher revenue per seat, but they do it just by gouging you. They like yeah. you, you get just nickeled and dime for everything, but you guys have figured out how to do it with value, how to say, Hey, how do we deliver more, a first class seat or it's an upgrade? Yeah. We, we upgrade along the way. And, um, our MPS score is high as I, you know, it's higher than what we have at Azul. Azul's 68 and we're 70. And, and our ancillary revenue is as high as those other guys are that we charge extra, but we do it in such a way that people feel good about it instead of feeling ripped off. Yeah. I, I think it is. It's like I pay for a first class seat, another 50 bucks or 70 bucks, but to like be forced to pay for a bag, you just don't feel great. You know, no. you, you still fly it cause you need to take that route. But you don't feel good doing it versus like loving it. Now my son, my, uh, anybody follow Ballerina Farm here? Ballerina Farm? Yes. That's my, that's my son and daughter-in-law. And, uh, so when Hannah won the Mrs. America pageant in Vegas, they had to go to look at a farm up in, in Portland. They didn't expect her to win. So my, my son called and booked a ticket on Frontier for all the seven kids. And, and they all had little backpacks. When they got to the gate, Frontier charged him a hundred dollars for every single backpack. And he called me up so mad. He said, dad, as long as I live, I promise I will never fly the airline again. I hate those people. I go, okay, okay good. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I mean, spirits having all kinds of troubles. We, we have our surveying and internal surveying and, you know, all the market research we see 50% of Americans wouldn't fly spirit if you gave them a free ticket. That's crazy. <laughs> That's a pretty bad position to be in. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, cause I know this has been something that's kind of been central your entire life. Talk to me a little bit about faith and how your faith has influenced all the decisions you made all the way in your life. You know, I just, um, I'm just so grateful for my faith. I mean, I'm so grateful that, um, it, it, you know, there's just so much more than, you know, w the material stuff in life. You know, I mean, um, you know, I had an interesting experience. My, um, my daughter-in-law's my father, Valerie Farm passed away and his funeral was on Saturday. And so we went to the funeral. It's over here in Springville and, and, uh, you know, they did a little short reel of the funeral 
and, you know, post it online. And my, uh, my, my, my son, my son's mother-in-law whose husband passed away has just not been shy at all about her faith and, and talking about it and going through the whole process on Instagram, which, you know, some people say that you should be private on that. You shouldn't talk about it, but the impact that, that they had on people all over the world is just incredible. And so as they posted this little reel on Instagram and around midnight on Saturday night, by eight o'clock in the morning, when I woke up, there were 12 million views on this thing. And because of the time change, a lot of the early comments, there were 8,000 comments. And a lot of the early ones were coming from the Muslim world, from Saudi Arabia, from Turkey, from all of these places where they have followers. And, and the comment was, why are these people smiling? Why are they not wearing morning clothes? clothes? And I just had this such a great feeling that, you know, I love um, our doctrine. I love our life. I love the plan of salvation. I love everything about it. And, you know, what drives me absolutely around the bend is, you know, people who nitpick and people who, who, um, you know, listen to these podcasts and kind of lose their faith and then they become atheists. You know, it's like, great. Congratulations. Um, you know, I have nine children. They're all faithful. I've got 33 grandkids and I just, it's the biggest blessing of my life. And there's nothing more important to me. Than I, that. I know it's so different for so many people and everybody, are, you know, are on their different journey. But I think something that I've always admired about you is there's a, an authenticity to it that you, you know, haven't ever been shy to kind of lead with your heart and, and kind of acknowledge that, Hey, this is something that's really important to me. And it guides, guides my life. It guides my decisions. How could I not be when I've been so blessed and, and, you know, I've been blessed with, you know, they have this saying that you're only as happy as happy as your most unhappy child. You know, I don't necessarily believe that's the case, but I've got nine kids that make me happy and 33 grandkids and a great wife. And, you know, it's just like nothing, nothing, you know, no success can compensate. No, no success outside the world can compensate for, um, fracaso nular as if you say in Portuguese for failure in the home. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and I know that there's lots of good people that have, you know, tragic situation with their kids, but I'm just so grateful that, you know, I'm, you know, I've been blessed the way I have and that I, you know, hopefully my kids have, have, you know, taken the examples of their mother and father and, and have, have led to a lot of happiness. Well, David, you're a hero of mine. Um, I've loved doing this. I got one question before we finish up. If you were to go back to David Nealman when you were 21 years old, what advice would you give yourself kind of in hindsight, you know, with the experiences you've had, what would you tell yourself you know, 40 plus years later. I had a really inferiority complex about being scholastic. Um, I, I scored an, an 18 on the ACT. I got a nine in English. I was illiterate when I graduated from high school. And I was, I had, you know, I felt like I was kind of a fraud because people thought, wow, you're a pretty sharp guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm pretty stupid. 
you know, my, my counselor in high school said, how did you get a nine on the ACT in English? If you would have just put C on every answer, you would have got a 12. <laughs> I said, you should have told me that before I took the dang test. Um, so, you know, I just learned that I had a, that I had something special and that as long as I learned how to deal with it, um, I would have gone back and said, you're going to do okay. You're going to be successful. Just focus on the right things. And, and, um, you know, you are special in the way you think and, and think outside the box. And I think that would have given me a lot of comfort because I didn't find out I had ADD until I was, after I'd left Southwest Airlines, my mom sent me a book. It was called Driven to Distraction, written by a guy named Ned Hallowell. And I read those 21 criteria and I just burst out bawling. I couldn't believe it. You know, that that was, um, that was what was wrong with me. And it was like, what was also right with me. I, uh, kind of, Todd Peterson, when I asked him that question, his response was, I would have told myself to dream bigger earlier. Yeah. That I that I just didn't believe enough in myself or that it was possible. And looking back, I would have went faster. And I guess one more question to the last question is, what would you tell everybody? There's a lot of college kids in the room, BYU yeah. students. What would you tell kind of somebody that's an aspiring entrepreneur as they start that journey? Yeah, not everybody can be an entrepreneur. You know, you have to have passion. If you don't go to bed at night thinking about your idea and wake up thinking about it and think about the whole time you're in the shower, you know, maybe you're not an entrepreneur because it is, it's really an obsession uh, to be able to do it. So, you know, don't, um, you don't take any, don't think that it's easy. Surround yourself with really good people and just make right decisions. Take care of people, take care of um, those around you and, you know, and, and it will come back to you. Surround yourself with good people, share the wealth with them, make sure they're part of it and, um, and enjoy the journey. No, I love it. Give it up. Thank you guys.